John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. You get hilarious satirical takes on entertainment, politics, sports, and more from John and the team of correspondents and contributors. The podcast also has content you can't get anywhere else, like extended interviews and a roundup of the weekly headlines. Listen to The Daily Show Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, welcome to Beyond the Scenes, the daily show podcast that goes a little deeper into topics and segments that originally aired on the show. This is what this podcast is. All right, like you go grocery shopping, right? And you didn't got all the groceries you need and you're putting everything up there on the little conveyor belt. And then you look around and you see a National Enquirer talking about the royal family. And then you see some candy. And then you see some breath mints. You realize your breath stink. And then next thing you know, you got all these extra snacks and Snickers and Butterfingers and Toblerones and you just throw it all in the cart. That's what this podcast is. The extra thing you didn't know you need, but it made your day that much more enjoyable. Today, we're talking about book bans, especially bans and challenges on books for children and young adults in schools and local libraries. Here with me to discuss this today and to discuss Ban Books Week, we have Deborah Caldwell-Stone, director of the American Library Association's Office for Intellectual Freedom. Deborah, hello to you. Glad to be here, Roy. Thanks for inviting me. And we also have George M. Johnson, author of All Boys Aren't Blue, a memoir manifesto that has appeared on too many banned and challenged book lists and the honorary chair for Banned Books Week. George, how you doing with your banned ass? <laughs> I'm good today. <laughs> Thanks for asking. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, Deborah, yeah, I want to start with you. I have a lot to ask you, George, about your book. But first, Deborah, let's just set up the whole issue in a totality. Now, it seems like every other day is something on social media or a news story or about a school district trying to ban a book. Let's just talk about what the actual baseline problem is and what we're seeing. Well, what we're seeing are public school boards and public libraries uh, removing books because someone in the community doesn't like the ideas um, or the topics of the books. Uh, which is absolutely contrary to the First Amendment um, and everyone's right to choose what they want to read in libraries. Uh, What's worse, it seems to be an organized campaign by conservative advocacy groups that want to limit our ability to think about particular issues. Um, and, And George is book is kind of a double whammy because what's being targeted are books uh, dealing with the lives and experiences of LGBTQIA persons and the lives and experiences of Black persons and persons of color. Um, There seems to be a particular animus for this. We're seeing legislation. We're seeing uh, assaults on uh, school board meetings, threats being directed at librarians and educators, uh, people afraid to go to their cars after board meetings because of what's going on. We actually just had a drag queen uh, bingo teen event canceled here in the Chicago suburbs this week because of the rising threats against it. So we're seeing a real wave of censorship that's targeting um, really the lives and experiences of marginalized persons and opportunities for them to stand on the public stage. From who, Deborah? Is this from the school boards? Is this from the parents? Is this just some midterm issue that's coming from a bunch of Republican zealots? Like, who are making these calls to have the books banned? Well, we're seeing groups like Moms for Liberty, 
parents defending education, no left turn in education. Uh, and there's other uh, so-called parents' rights groups that are more local, like Purple for Parents in Indiana, that uh, make up lists of bad books. They want to narrow the opportunities for reading and education for young people in particular. Um, and they go to school board meetings. They go to library board meetings, use public comment to focus on one paragraph or one image in a graphic novel and try to claim that this is pornography or this is bad for young people, harmful to students or minors. Um, and they demand the immediate removal of the book. They even use false framing around the, the, the idea that this is pornography. Um, and school boards, elected officials are responding to it in part because I think it is a political wedge issue during the midterms. Uh, we saw that uh, Glenn Youngkin was successful in part in Virginia in winning that gubernatorial seat because uh, he focused on a parent who was unhappy that her 17-year-old honors English student had to read Toni Morrison's Beloved. Uh, she thought it wasn't fit reading for a 17-year-old going to college. And so she made a commercial for Governor Youngkin, and they noticed that. So we're seeing it used across mm. the country. As a parent, it's tough to catch everything. So when my son showed me his reading assignment, my heart sunk. It was some of the most explicit material you can imagine. Glenn Youngkin, he listens. He understands parents matter. Join me in voting for Glenn Youngkin. How do you all fight back with this? How does the ALA fight back against this? Because if this is a political issue and it's starting to come up, you know, in terms of legislation right now, how are you all able to support the local libraries and schools to push back on this, you know, for now at least? What's the most you can do for now to push back on this issue? From our end, for the association, we do our best to provide one-on-one -on -one assistance to librarians and educators who are dealing with these book bans, um, assisting them with the process of addressing the complaints from these groups uh, and individuals who are being who are activated by social media usually. Um, and then uh, we have resources about best practices and things like that. We have state chapters on the ground too that are able to provide resources and support to individual libraries. Uh, and we also do things like we have a merit, we have something called the Leroy C. Merit Humanitarian Fund. So if a librarian finds that their employment is being harmed or affected or they're experiencing discrimination because of their defense, of their students' right to read, we can provide them with financial assistance that um, uh, helps pay for an attorney to advise them and things like that. But as a community, of course, there's the ability for individuals to take note of what's happening locally, to go to school board meetings, to participate in their local elections, um, and, and to raise their own voices against censorship. And that's incumbent on all of us. So much of this happens because these groups show up at these board meetings and they're the only voices in the room. And if you don't have a lot of knowledge, if you don't have a lot of experience with this, it's very easy to think that you're dealing with uh, the, the majority, but we're not. We know that they're a vocal minority and everyone needs to be aware of this and participate in local community activity with local elections, local board meetings, both school board and library board meetings. Um, we can even talk a little bit about uh, uh, 
grassroots advocacy platform that we've created for individuals and communities to use to fight book censorship in their communities. Um, it's called Unite Against Book Bans, and it's at uniteagainstbookbans.org. Um, and there you'll find a toolkit that can help you organize yourself and your neighbors to be present at board meetings and raise your voice, how to, uh, where you can find information, talking points, letters to the editors, how to be aware of what's going on in local elections, questions to ask candidates to find out where they stand on this issue. And it's not mm -hmm. just elections for boards. It's also elections for mayors, county commissioners, because many boards are appointed and you have to know where your elected officials stand on this issue. And you want them to commit to preserving your right to choose what you want to read for yourself and your family. I will, I will say this about this issue. I ain't ever seen more people who ain't never read shit more concerned about books. And well, I'm sorry for cussing. No, you're absolutely right. Often we find that individuals have never read the book that they're challenging. We actually have instances where individuals have kind of ripped a list of bad books off of social media. Um, and social media is a great amplifier for these groups and their claims about books. But they'll take that list to their local library and demand that these books be censored. And then it turns out the book wasn't on the shelf of the library. Um, and uh, they didn't even know to check the library's catalog to see if it's there. Um, and it's very clear that when people talk about books like uh, All Boys Aren't Blue, they have no idea what's in it. They only know the one paragraph they read on social media. Uh, they don't have any acquaintance with the book at all, but yet they're demanding that it be censored for the entire community, whether it's the community of students in a school district or the community as a whole. Okay, so then to that point, so then George, so these book bans, they're, uh, most of it all falls under books that are affecting or written for or speak to the audience of BIPOC or LGBTQIA plus authors and consumers. And so your book, All Boys Aren't Blue, specifically this, this book, is your approach to how your intersectionality at some of these identities affected you and your upbringing. And made you who you are today. And so in the final chapter, you said, and I want to get this right and correct me if I'm wrong. You said, quote, there were no books for me to read in order to understand what I was going through as a kid. There were no heroes or icons to look up to and emulate. There were no roadmaps or guidelines for journey. And again, because I know there wasn't and still isn't much out there, I made it my original goal to get this right, end quote. So let's just start there. Talk, talk a little bit more about that. And what do you feel like was missing from your reading as a kid and why titles like yours should be essential reading for young adults? Yeah, um, I only have one quote that's tattooed on me, and it's the Toni Morrison quote. If there's a book that you want to read and hasn't been written yet, then you must write it. And so I was writing the book that I always um, wished that I had uh, when I was a team who was struggling with my identity and trying to um, just figure out what it was I was going through and if anybody else in the world uh, was also having those same type of issues. Um, realistically, growing up, there just weren't images uh, on television and film uh, and especially no images in books of us. And if there were any images of us, um, there were probably slurs being used or hurled towards us. 
Um, yeah. And it's, and it's kind of interesting, right? Like, I don't remember a whole lot of the readings that I had in high school, but, you know, everybody re remembers Catcher in the Rye um, and Holden Caulfield and how that story didn't resonate with any of us uh, as Black students. Talking pigs from um, Animal Farm. Right. And if I'm not mistaken, it was the term savages being used in Invisible Man. I, I'm almost certain. And that's what they were referring to Indigenous people as um, throughout the entire book. And... I, that was what my upbringing was in terms of books, right? Books that um, even if they did mention um, other identities outside of people who were white, those identities were oftentimes demonized or being penalized for uh, being who they were. But even when I think about television and film, there was really, I always say like, I, I remember like there was like a gay character on a show called Spin City. <laughs> With uh, Michael, yeah. J. Fox. Michael J. Fox, I remember that one. And I was like, it was a black man who I believe was like a was like one of the gay characters. And so I was like, I remember him. I remember RuPaul. But like outside of those two entities, there just wasn't much for mm -hmm. us to cling on to or latch on to. And what that does when you don't have images of yourself in the world, one, you don't know that you also exist in the world. But two, it almost makes uh, like queer teens and black queer teens have to go through a second adolescence. Um, throughout their adulthood because their original adolescence, they were just trying to protect themselves out of safety and couldn't identify as who they were um, and had no roadmap for it. And so we unfortunately make a lot of mistakes well into our adulthood. Uh, we don't get to have the same experiences around dating. It's like my little brother started dating at 13. Well, if I'm gay and clearly I'm at Catholic school, I can't date anybody. So I actually don't start my dating experience till I'm well into my 20s, right? So it, it, it just mm -hmm. continues to put um, students behind when they don't have source materials uh, that can actually tell them who they are, what they are, what some of the things that they may go through may look like, and how to navigate the spaces and the things that they are already encountering. Yeah, when you really put it in that perspective, and I'm like, rewinding in my head, you know, if you're looking at anybody in the LGBTQIA community in that era of television, 80s and 90s, it was definitely a punchline first. Or if you were a positive character, then the character was not written as openly gay. It was just assumed or implied. Like I'm thinking like Meshach Taylor from Designing Women, where Right. This person just being like, are they gay? Are they not? Well, it doesn't matter. They make the plot work. Let's just, let's <laughs> not worry about that character's backstory. He's right. here to support the women. In this. Like, take me through the day you found out your ass got banned. <laughs> I almost feel like we were in a different place as a country when you first started writing this book versus when you released it into the pit fires of CRT hell. One, right. Did you know when you were writing this that it might appear on banned book list? And two, what was what was your initial feeling when you first found out that your book was under attack by so many of these groups that Deborah was talking about? I knew it was getting banned from the moment I wrote it, and I told McMillan, I told my team at McMillan, I was like, "Well, what are we gonna do when the books get when the book gets banned?" And they were like, "Why do you think your books will get?" Banned? I was like, "I am black and queer, and I am writing a memoir for young adults. Like, this is not going to just fly. like if I was white, and I always say like if I was white and queer and had this story that was very similar to this." Um, I would have probably won every award. I would have been heralded on everything. Oh, it would have already been a movie. Right. Oh, it would have been courage. a whole different thing. But it's like when you're black and queer and you write this particular story, it's like, oh, how dare you? Like, you know, tell us about ourselves. How dare you even have the audacity to tell us that you exist? Right. 
Um, the first notice I got of a book ban was actually, I was on Twitter and somebody added me who followed me and was like, hey, this person in Kansas City is running for school board and like the whole, like their whole platform is built around banning your book. And so I went to Facebook and I saw what the, course, the, that's the white guy was saying. And so I, it's not really a quote tweet, but like on Facebook, you know how like you could take a post and then write a yeah. post. So like I wrote yeah. above the post. I don't remember what punchline I used, but I wrote a punchline because if anybody who follows me on Twitter or anywhere knows if, if I'm a drag and carry, I'll drag and carry. And so I dragged him and then he deleted <laughs> the post. I thought that was it. Honestly, I did. Um, but I had an inkling to set up Google alerts. And I was like, let me set up Google alerts so I can keep track of this. Because if it's happening like this in like very small locales, I won't catch it. I won't catch it. Mm -hmm. And so um, that was like the end of September of last year. Um, by November, I think I had hit eight states, had already like started to pull the book, but nobody nationally was covering the story yet because nobody knew that this was happening because they were doing it so covertly in such small places. Nobody knew what was happening except for the American Library Association and us as the authors who were getting the Google <laughs> alerts. So then I made a tweet like, hey y'all, just by the way, like my book is banned in eight states and it went viral. And so of course, cause I was a former journalist, I have a bunch of journalists journalists who follow me. And so they were all like, wait, George, what are you talking about? And so that's when I started to speak out against it. The moment I started speaking out against it, I, I, it went, that tweet goes viral on, a, I think, a Thursday or a Friday. By that next Friday, that's when the criminal complaint is filed against me in Florida. And, and mm -hmm. uh, the criminal complaint is filed against me, one against me, one against the book in Florida. And that's literally when the banned book situation went from something very mild to something very, very serious, very, very quickly. Like when she did that, it, it, it just, it just became a battlefield. You just, and, uh, you just can't yeah. breeze past criminal complaint as they yeah. say on all the thinky show. Let's unpack that for a second. Right. What crime were you guilty of? What um, crime were you alleged, you alleged to have committed, George? Well, the books, I, the crime the book committed was because <laughs> the book has it had its own charge. The crime that the book committed was like under some like pornography act or pornography law in Florida that she was trying to file it mm -hmm. under. Um, the crime I committed, I think she was trying to get me for like intimidation and harassment because I continued to speak out about it. And especially after she filed a criminal complaint against my book, um, I started to speak out about it um, and she didn't like that. Uh, but but realistically, it was part of the playbook, like because they weren't winning in every like everywhere that they were trying to ban books. They weren't necessarily winning. Right. Mm -hmm. Like we were winning in some of those cases and the ACLU mm -hmm. was winning. And so once it got to that point where they realized that they weren't winning in some of those places, they do what they do and they try to go to criminal you know, criminalization route. Yeah. And they've and been doing so, that across the country. The country now. Like yeah. she was the first. And I mean, as soon as she did it. Mm -hmm. North Carolina was next. Then I think it was one in South Carolina. Then it was one in Iowa. That's when the senator, no, the governor of Iowa went on TV with my book and read the most graphic part of the book on TV and said she was going to pass a law so that nobody could give my book out. So that's when they literally, that was their next part of their plan was like, okay, if we're not going to win it, if, if, if following the rules won't allow us to win because they were following the rules and school boards even some conservative school boards were like, no, we're not getting rid of all the books. Um, yeah. They went the criminal route. And so now they're, they're, they're taking it up. We all know what they're trying to do. They're trying to get it to the Supreme Court. They're trying to challenge the 1982 yeah. PICO case that gives students yeah. rights 
to have their books. We're not stupid. Like we know that first they started at local, then they went to, now that we're at state level yeah. and eventually a federal lawsuit, more likely than that will probably be against me um, in the book and the American Library Association. We've actually seen federal legislation introduced that would penalize state funding for schools and require literally require uh, the states to allow people to use, uh, I believe they're called 512 plans for tuition set-asides yeah. um, for religious schools that they're not allowed to use those plans for if there's an allegation that the school, the, the state is tolerating the presence of books that are deemed to be inappropriate by these groups. We don't think that legislation is going to go anywhere, especially since, uh, well, Midterms are coming up, who knows? Um, and they're being bolder, as we saw yesterday. But, um, you know, we're seeing state legislation. 27 states have adopted some sort of CRT ban. Um, we're seeing now don't say gay bills. Like in Florida, they're literally taking in all the books out of classrooms. They're yeah. so terrified. We now have a lawsuit in Tennessee. A group of parents is suing to remove curriculum that they believe is teaching white kids to hate their race, quote unquote. And so under the anti-CRT law in Tennessee, they've brought lawsuit. And among the books that they're citing are Ruby Bridges' autobiography that she wrote for six-year-olds that uses historical photographs of her uh, integrating her school in New Orleans with all the adults screaming at her and using profanities against her. And, and they say that's too intense for a six-year-old and it makes them feel bad about their race. They actually attacked a biography of Martin Luther King that shows images of crossing the bridge in Selma and the resulting police attack on the protesters as saying that's inappropriate for K through 12 students to have access to. And so we'll, well, we'll have to see what happens with this lawsuit. But we're seeing a systematic attack using all kinds of channels to limit and narrow what we can think about to what uh, a very small group of people think is appropriate. Um, this 1952 yeah. vision of a white society where there aren't troublesome people who are gay or black or queer or transgender. Right. Yep. All adjudicated at the state and local level by officials that are appointed by people in elections that we deem unnecessary and unimportant. <laughs> Way Absolutely. To go. Um, after the break, I want to get a little bit more into this side of it, the legality of it, but also I want to talk about what we as parents can be doing to talk to our children about their reading choices and how to do this the right way in spite of what might be happening in the schools. This is Beyond the Scenes. We'll be right back. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. You get hilarious satirical takes on entertainment, politics, sports, and more from John and the team of correspondents and contributors. The podcast also has content you can't get anywhere else, like extended interviews and a roundup of the weekly headlines. Listen to The Daily Show Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Deborah, I want to start with you again and just expanding a little bit on what George has been talking about, about this allegation that this book is teaching the children the sexuality and it ain't time for the kid to be learning about the sex and all of that stuff. And they're grooming the children, Deborah. What is happening in these conversations that is alleging sexual grooming? Like, you, you got a, you, wasn't there a book in Texas about farting? Yes. What was that book? My butt well, is so noisy. A noisy butt or something. Noisy butt. Well, and that was vulgarity. You know, that's just too vulgar. I mean, we, we all know that that's the sweet spot for the third third grade boys, right? You know, if you want them to get them to read, there's Captain Underpants, uh, I Need a New Butt, uh, you know. Uh, what was it? Yeah. Harry, Harry the farting dog, you know, um, and and it's a great gateway for those six, seven, eight year old boys who are a little slower to pick up reading and you want to generate a love of books and reading in them. And you give them these essentially joke books. But we actually know that there was a principal, I believe it was in Alabama, who was fired for reading um, I Need a New Butt to a class of kids. He read it in the late afternoon as a treat because they done so well all day for him. And as a result, he was fired for, you know, uh, doing vulgar things with the kids. But that's separate from what I think is a far more toxic conversation that's going on. These groups like Moms for Liberty, um, uh, Parents Defending Education, whatever, um, are creating a false and uh, toxic framing around materials that deal with uh, gender identity, sexual orientation, and even sex ed, you know, and they're arguing that these books are obscene for minors to read, obscene for the display for minors, or are, you know, whoever writes them or whoever provides them are pandering obscenity to minors. And that's absolutely false. What the, you know, the Supreme Court has told us what is protected speech in this case, and sex is a protected sub subject, gender identity, sexual orientation, all these things. The, you know, if it has educational value, if it has scientific value, artistic value, literature. That's all protected by the First Amendment. But they're trying to shift the needle on this conversation. They're trying to reframe this in a way that gives them the tools they need to censor all of this material and, uh, and use the courts and, and use the law to do it. So we've seen situations like the one in Florida where the, uh, the person who actually brought the charges in that case was a school board member who had been recently elected from one of these parents' rights groups. Um, he had run for a vacant seat to fill a term and she won. And she was so unhappy with the fact that the board was taking its time in reviewing George's book and, and comparing it to whether it had been acquired according to policy and met educational needs, that that's when she went to the sheriff's office to file the charges uh, of obscenity. Now, fortunately, the prosecutor and the sheriff's department in Florida rejected all the charges. They said, this book isn't obscene. And if you want a decision on this book, well, it's the school board that properly makes it according to their policies. But we've also seen this happen in states like Wyoming, uh, a group, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with mass resistance, but they're an anti-LGBTQ hate groups. And they have a local chapter in Wyoming. And they actually filed criminal charges against the library staff and the public library in Gillette, um, uh, Wyoming. Uh, and again, the library staff. Just for staff, having the books. 
just for having books and books that were meant to be, where does baby, where do babies come from? Uh, this is what's happening to your body during puberty books. Um, uh, and then a few books like George's that are intended for young adults who uh, identify as gay or queer um, and who want to understand what they're going through or, you know, learn something from others' experiences so they can navigate their identity successfully and set up su successful relationships as a teen and an adult. Um, uh, in this case, this book is gay by Juno Dawson was one yeah. of the targets of these charges. Uh, and these librarians lived in fear for three weeks that somebody was going to come and put them in handcuffs and put them in jail for simply providing books to the young adults that asked for those books in their community. Public servants. Um, fortunately, again, the prosecutor rejected all those charges, said, no, no crime's been committed here. The, these books aren't obscene. And, and the library did what it was supposed to do in providing these books. But we're seeing more and more of this narrative pushed on boards, uh, on, on communities. And if you don't have a lot of knowledge about the First Amendment, if you don't have a lot of experience with this kind of litigation, um, it's easy to be swayed by these arguments because we don't have a lot of good civic education anymore. That's right. just my opinion. But, um, <laughs> you know, we don't teach civics anymore. We don't, we don't teach, teach government. Well, what people know we don't teach government, government anymore. On, you know, and they play on this ignorance and they play on parents' fears, you know. George, what are, what are other banned authors saying and doing? We know what you're doing and, you know, you've taken up a torch to fight and you have you you almost like in a way to me, it's almost like and I know Scarface is not the best analogy, <laughs> but I envision you. You were just an author. You're just trying to sell your book and mind your damn business. And then you looked up at the video camera and you saw all of them right wing groups coming and storming your book compound. You're like, oh, you want to play rough? Well, then, let, hey, you want to go to war? Let's go to war. Let's <laughs> let's have a fight about this. But in talking with other authors about this issue, mm -hmm. what are you seeing from them in terms of how they're reacting and what they are doing to strategize against this type of bullshit? Well, you know, it's, it's tough. Um, it's tough for various nuanced reasons for authors. Um, so, so one, most authors are not, like, media trained in the way to address these type of things in a way like I have a whole background as a journalist. So when I'm doing these interviews, someone's always going to try a gotcha question. Like they're always going to try like, well, should any books be banned? Like, or they, they always try and ask like a question like around that, right? Mm -hmm. Like around other, like to kind of like flip it on his head. But I always know how to like counter punch and I always know how to like counter a story. Not like all authors aren't trained to do that. And so you have many of them who fear that they'll get caught up and say something that they shouldn't say or say the wrong mm -hmm. thing and then it just spirals out of control. You also have some publishers who, you know, we just have to be honest and transparent. Um, I'm fortunate that when I made the decision that I was going to fight this, like the way that I wanted to fight it, that my publisher was like, let's go for it. Like we have your back. That's not everybody's situation. There are many publishers who were like, we're not touching this. We don't, we, we'll release a statement as a, as an entity um, that says we're against this. But outside of that, we really don't want our authors in that type of fire. We don't want our authors in that type of heat. We don't want to have that type of thing happening. And so you don't have many authors who, who speak out. I would say there's a group of us though, um, who are unapologetically speaking out, um, like the Tiffany Jacksons, like the Nick Stones, like the Angie Thomases, 
um, myself, uh, Ashley Hope Perez, Leah Johnson. Like there are some of us who are who are not afraid to speak out, but it's tough. Does an author, especially a new author who has written something that is in the crosshairs of being banned, do they run the risk of jeopardizing their career as an author by choosing to fight and going against the will and wishes of their publisher who, hey, just be quiet and we'll just sell what we can and we'll do a couple of activations and, you know, and we'll, you know, this book has the ability to simmer over a cup and then they'll turn around and use the lack of sales to justify not running with you again. <laughs> so, like, is there is there a bit of that to some degree with some of the authors that are dealing with this? Absolutely. Um, at, at 100%, there's, there's a lot of that too, right? Like, because... Publishing, it's it. You know, there are a lot of imprints, there are a lot of places, but it, it's just like any other industry. It's just like any other industry, and a person can be, or a publisher, or multiple publishers can be turned off by the fact that you're so vocal. Can be turned off by the fact, and I mean, like there are even times like we're in contracts that I do. We have to put a clause in it that I'm allowed to still speak out against certain things because a lot of times there are actual clauses in the contracts that prevent people from from talking about certain subjects or talking in certain ways without the approval of their 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 publishing house. Um, and that's not necessarily like a bad thing. That's more of a protection thing to make sure that, you know, authors aren't just saying whatever they want to say, wherever they want to say it. But I also think because we're in an unprecedented moment, a lot of people just aren't sure how to react to it. I think some people aren't sure if this is like a situation that's just going to pass once the midterms are done, you know, because nope. they, they always try to find something new. And so we're not sure. I don't think it's going to pass, but we're still not sure, right? Because it was like, remember, it was Antifa. When was the last time you heard anybody say Antifa? They don't say it anymore, right? It was Black Lives Matter. The only time now that you ever hear them say Black Lives Matter is because now they're arresting those Capitol rioters, right? And so that's the only time you ever hear anybody say it is because they're trying to juxtapose it. But outside of that, they don't say it anymore. And so now we're like, oh, your next thing is the book bans and education. And so we're like, where is this going, right? Like, let's say the midterms, there isn't some big red wave and they keep the, and, and Dems actually keep the House and the Senate. I'm not sure if they're gonna keep fighting for this, right? But if they do flip a chamber or flip both chambers or whatever, then this may continue to be their fight. I think this the issue of book bans, curriculum, education would have probably been one of the top issues had the Roe v. Wade situation not having installed the thunder of everything and kind of shifted the whole midterm. Yeah. But I do think that this is still a very, very important issue. And um, that's why I continue to choose to fight it because it's not just about taking my book out of a library or taking our books out of certain libraries. Like our books are saving lives. We have the emails, we have the direct messages. We have all of that, that, that these students and that these teens send us that that let us know that literally like these kids were on the brink and somebody handed them our book and it changed the trajectory of their entire life. Um, and so that's why we fight so hard because we can't let that, we, we just can't let it happen. Absolutely. Deborah, where does the line stop then? Because we could go books, we could go audio books, we could go eBooks. This has the whole potential to cross over into the digital world and the internet. What's, what's to stop a school from saying, all right, now that we got all these books banned, what's up with these newspapers? Let's start blocking all the IP. They're already doing that. You know, they've already enacted bans into reading anything from the New York Times dealing yeah. with the 1619 Project. That's law in 17 states. 
law. Now, whether that stands up to the legal challenges, uh, right now, I, I have to give a little boost to ACLU. They're challenging CRT bills, uh, laws in New Hampshire, yes, Oklahoma, and Florida, and don't say gay in Florida. So props to them. We'll see where that how that falls out. But I'm terrified given the appointments to the judiciary over the last four years. But we'll set that aside. Um, but we're already seeing it. We saw a whole public library district in Texas pull the plug on their entire ebook platform because they didn't like the fact that George's book and Gender Queer by Maya Kababi were part of the ebook collection and to kill the entire ebook access for two books. Now, all the books? All the books. Yeah, all the books. All the books. And what the, the sad hell the Bearstein Bears, they ain't done nothing to nobody. <laughs> Well, what's worse is that they, they're a rural community and they have a lot of elderly and disabled folks in the community that relied on digital ebook access. This elderly woman says, who's, how am I going to read my weekly romance? I can't get out. I don't drive. Mm. I, I, I use large print on the screen. And now they've taken that all away. And they, the board didn't care. The elected officials didn't care. They were more concerned about the, the small group in the community that was claiming that books like George's were pornography and harmful to minors. And they bought that. And they actually replaced the library board with the actual censors in that community. Now, that's being challenged in a lawsuit, but that's going to be a long remedy for that. It'll be years before that is resolved, if at all. You know, it shouldn't be that we have to go to court to preserve our civil liberties our right to read and our right to have equal access to a community resource like the books in a library and have the resource reflect everyone's lives in the community. Uh, and it's just really terrible. But I don't, you know, digital has made it worse. Um, it's not only taking away digital access, it's the ability to track what people are reading and viewing on the screen. And we're seeing that happen to K through 12 students. You effectively have no privacy if you have a school issued laptop or Chromebook. And they're, you know, mm -hmm. they, they've actually, uh, turned on cameras after school hours. And there was one young person in Pennsylvania who actually was arrested for drug use because he had some kind of hard candy on his desk that was shaped like a capsule. And the IT department in his high school turned him into the police. You know, that, you know, again, mm. eventually resolved, but we, we, why are we tolerating this situation? Why are we taking away young people's rights, the privacy to their right to read? It's just, it's beyond imagining right now. To that point about selection and agency, George. So I, I have a six-year-old. Now, we try to let this boy choose what he want to eat. And for the most part, he's all right. He, like, if you ask him for what you want for breakfast, he will choose from an array of breakfast options. He won't just say, I want cupcakes. Um, we try to monitor the educational tablet time. And so there, there's this, there's this app called Epic, Epic Reading and Epic Reading lets you swipe through whatever book you want to find. And he's old enough to spell so he can search by topic. His thing is ninjas. If as long as you're reading, I don't care. He's some book called Cat Ninja. He is obsessed with Cat Ninja. And so I feel like as a parent, I kind of transitioned from something that, that my parents were in, which was very much, you're going to read this. Or you had a sign reading. You know, I'm from Alabama, but Birmingham Public Schools, where here's one slavery book and The Hobbit. 
Here's right. another slavery book and Beowulf. <laughs> like those, right. that was kind of the oscillation of things. But like when we talk about agency, so in your book, you know, you talked about, you know, a child wearing a basketball headband, for, for instance. And like if we use wardrobe as an example, you said, quote, yeah. rather than saying you are wearing this, I hope more adults will ask, what would you like to wear? and then have a conversation about these choices. So if we apply that same concept to reading, what conversations can a, can parents be having if they're raising a BIPOC or LGBTQIA plus child? What, what are they missing out on by not having those conversations and making sure that kids are getting reading materials that speak specifically to their child's experiences? Yeah, I mean, the real thing they're missing out on is that there's this, they're just assuming that their child is okay. And they're assuming that their child is like just just navigating life okay because their child hasn't said anything to them. And I think it's it, it's interesting, right? Because like and and I've talked about it with even like with my family before, um, because they're all up and through the book. But um it, it's just interesting because it was like, well, everybody knew I was queer, but nobody ever said it. And so I'm navigating my life with the, the bare minimum of resources that I have, but I have these guardians around me who are protecting me and who are doing all of the right things in their mind. But the one thing that they couldn't bring themselves to do was just ask me the question or sit down and talk with me about it. Because there's a real fear for some reason that has been built in this country um, that parents and kids should not be having adult conversations, even though parents are trying to prepare their children for adulthood. <laughs> and realistically, that's what's being missed, right? And so I liken it to the fact that we will send kids to college, but we will never teach them how to do their own taxes. And then at 21, they leave college, they get their first job. They have no idea what a one exemption is or two exemption is, a zero exemption is. And so you're like, we're literally just sending them out into the world ill-equipped. The whole notion that, oh, this the topic of sex is too heavy for my 14 to 18-year-old, because be clear, my book is for 14 to 18-year-olds. So then you're like, okay, well, if the topic of sex is too heavy for your 18-year-old, then you send your 18-year-old to college with no framework around sex, what exactly do you think is going to happen? And how do we know that we are lacking in teaching 14 to 18 year olds about sex because we can look at the rates of sexual assault, sexual misconduct and rape on college campuses across the United States and how rampant it is. And a lot of that is because we are not teaching sex education before we send them off into the world with raging hormones that we never taught them about. Um, and then they're making poor decisions. Just base level, no means no, reading body language, just how mm -hmm. not to raise an asshole. Right. And so that's what we're missing out on. That's what a lot of parents are missing out on, because parents are keep saying, I should have the right to teach this heavy topic in my home. And we're like, I don't disagree with that. But you're also not teaching that heavy topic in your home. So you can't have it both ways. Like you can't have it where you're like, I don't think the school should be teaching them this or this or they should be getting this at school because that's that should be my in-home decision that we make as a parent. But then it's like, OK, but then your child comes home and you're still not teaching them that and you're still not talking to them about that. 
and you're still not giving them access to it. So where exactly do you think they learn it from? And even in the section in the book that they're attacking the most, they're flipping what I said. What I said was most teenagers learn about sex through pornography. It is what it is. They sneak and watch it. I was a teenager who, who sneaked off and watched it. My friends were teenagers who sneaked off and watched it. And so when they when we're going through puberty, we're literally just pulling from any resource that we can that we can access because we keep getting denied the actual resources that we really need. <laughs> so instead, it's like, oh, well, I'm going to take George's book away from you. It doesn't stop your teens yearning to still know the information. But what it does is it means that they're going to now go down dangerous paths to get it. And that's all we're trying to prevent. We just want to be able to say, here's the roadmap instead of um, almost like a, a like a, a what, what those things used to call uh, when you used to have to search and find stuff. Um, scavenger hunt. Right. It's yeah. like. Rather than you having to go on a scavenger hunt for the information, we just want to give them the information. But instead, they think that when we introduce these heavy topics or that when these, the, the students get a book and they read the book, they think we're introducing these heavy topics to them. And what we're trying to tell them is, no, your teens are already going through this. They're already dealing with sexual assault. They're already dealing with and they're having these conversations. But y'all think we're introducing them to them and they're literally saying, no, we want the book so that we can learn about what we're already experiencing. Yeah. It's that fantasy if they don't read about, if the books aren't there to tell you about it, then it's the parents can pretend it's not happening. And we know yeah. that that's not it. You know, yeah. banning the book isn't going to take away the fact that kids are dealing with these issues on a regular basis and, or that they're experiencing it. Uh, and, you know, what would you rather have? A librarian or an educator making choices about and curating good content that addresses these issues in a responsible fashion that gives good information, accurate information, or, you know, out on the internet looking at pornography. I, you know, often say, you know, we're banning books, but let's look at that phone, that unrestricted, <laughs> unfiltered phone in the back pocket of every young person, you know? Okay, be clear. I definitely want to try and spin this into something positive because if it's one thing Americans love, it's stuff that's banned and forbidden and that you have limited access to. Low-key banned books week might be the thing that they didn't want to happen. That's going to happen. I want to unpack that a little bit with you, George. And also, I want to figure out ways, Deborah, that we the people can join the fight to help change this. We're talking banned books on Beyond the Scenes. We'll be right back. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. You get hilarious satirical takes on entertainment, politics, sports, and more from John and the team of correspondents and contributors. The podcast also has content you can't get anywhere else, like extended interviews and a roundup of the weekly headlines. Listen to The Daily Show Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Beyond the scenes, we're rounding third, headed for home. We're talking banned books. Now, let's discuss banned books week, which is this week. George, now, you are the honorary chair. Run us through the week. What's, what's on the agenda <laughs> of ban? Is there a brunch included? I love a good brunch. I, I do a brunch or a barbecue or a block party. Anything with a B. I'm okay. <laughs> Yeah, so this is the 40th anniversary of Band Books Week, and I'm really excited that I was chosen to uh, lead it. Um, interestingly, I guess interestingly enough, like 
Banned books have always been a, like a thing. It's just never been this big of a thing. So I yeah. think it's exciting because so many people are like interested in like uh, talking to the authors and, and hearing from us. And so um, we have virtual events lined up. Uh, we have one with the Emancipator, um, which I believe was, I think that was, was that Frederick Douglass's original newspaper? Um, I, I know so. they brought, yes. Yeah, so they brought it back. They brought back the Emancipator. It's now under the Boston Globe family. So we have an amazing, robust panel conversation um, with uh, Sarah Kate, who's the president of GLAAD. Uh, Leah Johnson will be there and several other authors will be there. Um, I'll be moderating that conversation. I'll also be on Tamron Hall coming up soon to talk about Shout band books. Shout out Tam fam. She's been an avid supporter of books um, and against the book bands. Um, we have, you know, some virtual, like I said, several virtual events lined up this week. Um, an in-person event, in, uh, I believe, in D.C. with uh, Dr. Ibram. X uh, Kendi, um, yeah. So it, it's it's really really exciting. So we have some uh, Instagram live things going on, um, some Facebook live things going on. Uh, yeah, we just want to you know wanted to make sure that people got to hear from the authors, um, that people understood you know the importance of fighting against censorship, um, and just having a really good time. Um, being proud of being banned, like I'm <laughs> proud to be banned. So I don't know about anybody. I think everybody can tell by now. Um, you know, me being banned got me on a New York Times bestseller list. So yeah. uh, it got me on a New York Times bestseller list and it, it got me in the top 10 list, right? On, I think my book is right above Toni Morrison's. And so I always tell everybody like, that's probably the only list I'm gonna ever make with Toni Morrison. So I'm gonna take that as a badge of uh, honor. Um, but yeah, Band Books, we, we, we wanted to make sure that we did something a little bit different this year and really go hard at it and really, um, almost re, re, re put the messaging back out there uh, because school just started again. So of course they're starting again. And so band book week is now our moment to really, really start again. Yeah. <laughs> and really we have a whole calendar of things going on both nationally and locally. If you go to bandbooksweek.org, you'll be able to find the calendar of all these events. There's a lot of in-person events going on at uh, local libraries and schools and community centers. Um, but uh, we're also doing things like a virtual readout uh, with authors and students who are part of the Kids Right to Read project at NCAC. Um, uh, and a, a number of uh, all these events that, you know, social media and things like that, that'll be a, a real great thing. Um, one thing to remember about Band Books Week Tuesday of Band Books Week is National Voter Registration Day. And so we're encouraged, we're taking that opportunity um, to encourage everyone to make sure that they know whether they're registered to vote or not, if they're not to register to vote, and to educate themselves about what's going on at elections at the local level. And we're going to really build a whole uh, series of promotions and events around that fact and take advantage of the coincidence. Yeah, know who you voting for. Don't just vote for somebody because they got to I be falling for them nice pictures, some of them politicians. Be having. <laughs> yeah. like, you don't read the platform. They be like, ban everything. You're like, ah, damn, I know. Yeah. I already checked yes on this person. Yeah. But Deborah, yeah. Are there any other resources that people like me, you know, like, like, let's talk hope and optimism. Uh, what else yeah. can we look to, you know, as we continue to see banned books in the news? Well, you can understand that you can do something about this as an individual and you can get your networks, your community groups to join you in this. And I, I mentioned earlier, Unite Against Book Bans and the resources that are available on that website that anyone can use to organize their friends, their 
church groups, their connections, their networks to be aware of what's going on locally um, and to be that louder voice in the room that speaks up in favor of the right to read, the right to choose, and, and the importance of making sure that your library reflects everyone's lives and choices. Um, and then uh, there's other things that individuals can do. Uh, you can, well, we have a Dear Band Authors campaign. Um, we have, and actually we're going to start a Dear librarians campaign this year, um, encouraging people to send postcards to librarians because they've been under particular attack this season uh, of censorship. Um, and so we're just uh, inviting people to use these resources to look beyond Ban Books Week. Um, you know, for so long, Ban Books Week has been one week. And we talk about celebrating the freedom to read. We celebrate the authors who've gone through banning and, and celebrate uh, the the right to make choices about our reading. Um, but I think this year we have to have Bam Books Week all year round. We have to have that awareness that we have this promise that we can read anything we want. We can think about anything we want under the First Amendment, and we have to protect that. And the only way to do that is becoming engaged locally. Uh, we have an aphorism, all library politics are local, all school politics are local. We need to take that to heart and, and just take on that duty to become engaged at the local level and uh, to raise our voices uh, together to empower ourselves to speak out. Okay. Last question, Deborah Caldwell Stone, director of the American Library Association's Office for Intellectual Freedom. And they are George M. Johnson, author and former journalist and proud band author. Give me, the two of you, some of your favorite band, but other than all boys aren't blue, other than George, you don't get to name your book, George. Other than that, what are some of your favorite band books? Just throw out a couple titles for our listeners to go and try and uh, dig up. I have to be uh, honest. One of my more life-changing reads was The Absolutely True Diary of Part-Time Indian by Sherman Alexie. I actually have family who lives in the area of Washington State that he grew up on the res in, and I had no idea what was going on beyond the country roads I was traveling on to go visit family. And it was just an eye opener. It was that door, that window into another life and gaining an understanding of the struggle to have an education. I so deeply appreciate that book and I recommend it to anyone. And, you know, I'm a recovering attorney, so almost incumbent on me to throw out To Kill a Mockingbird, although it's kind of cliched <laughs> and things, you know. Uh, but, you know, I find when I read through the list of banned books, I, I, you know, I have that experience that I had with Absolutely True Diary. They turn out to be life-changing, eye-opening, um, thought-provoking, you know, books. And I recommend anyone the reading list of this year's banned books, top 10 banned books list, which you can find on the ALA website at ALA.org um, as a reading list. Um, of course, George's book is on that list. But yes. <laughs> I have the list hanging up. It's uh, right here to the right of me, <laughs> um, hanging on the wall. Um, yeah. Uh, Lawn Boy, definitely. Um, Tony Morrison's The Bluest Eye, which I'm still like, I, I don't get it. I'm shocked. I'm like, how is that being challenged all these years? I think Beloved is also challenged. And I think um, I'm, I'm specifically going to talk about Beloved um, because 
I remember when the movie Beloved came out and a lot of us struggled with it and we were like, I don't understand it, I don't get it. And then um, one of my friends, her name is um, Dr. Jen Jackson, she reframed Beloved and she was like, the problem is y'all aren't reading Beloved as a black horror story. And she was like, if you go into the mindset of like how Jordan Peele is doing black, like these black horrors, she was like, read Beloved, but read it from the mind standpoint that this is a horror. And it blew my mind one, it blew my mind. Once again, Toni Morrison was well ahead of her time. Um, but two, I think everybody should go back and reread Beloved from the the mindset of I'm not looking at this as like a love story or a tragedy, but I'm looking at this as a horror. Um, because that's it, it, it truly, if you read it, it will teach you how to build upon if you want to be a, a horror writer or, you know, it, it just has so much texture to it. Um, so, yeah. Okay. Well, that's all the time we have for today. George, thank you to you. Deborah, thank you to you as well. Thank you, Brian. Hopefully by now, we have taken you all beyond the scenes. We'll see you next week. Listen to The Daily Show Beyond the Scenes on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. You get hilarious satirical takes on entertainment, politics, sports, and more from John and the team of correspondents and contributors. The podcast also has content you can't get anywhere else, like extended interviews and a roundup of the weekly headlines. Listen to The Daily Show Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.